Welcome to Newcastle Going Green, a series of monthly podcasts brought to you by the Newcastle Sustainability Advisory Board. Each episode will give you information about green initiatives and sustainable options you can find around Newcastle. We're back after a brief hiatus for the summer, and on today's episode, we will be talking about managing wildlife interactions in the suburbs and coexisting with our four-legged insect and other animal neighbors with expert Dr. Danielle Begley-Miller. Dr. Begley Miller is a director of science and stewardship at Teatown Lake Reservation, where she oversees land stewardship and various research programs. She collaborates with undergraduates and graduates while also mentoring high school students as part of the Teatown Environmental Science Academy. Teatown is a 1,000 acre nature preserve uniquely situated by areas of human activity, power lines, roads, etc., and also allows for various studies regarding human impact on the environment. So we would love to welcome Dr. Begley Miller to Newcastle Going Green. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I had the distinct pleasure of working with Dr. Begley Miller for four weeks this summer as part of the T-Town Environmental Sciences Academy. And I'm actually really excited to do this episode because we're going to be talking about wildlife in the suburbs. And a lot of our viewers here today are from the suburbs, and uh, we all know that we come into direct contact with wildlife on a daily basis. We see raccoons, squirrels, sometimes even beavers, insects, all sorts of things. And what's interesting is that suburban backyards have actually become the sort of bastion for um, all sorts of species because they provide food and shelter for a lot of animals. So what happens is you've got what's called the urban wildlife paradox. Um, team of researchers, I was just reading this, at North Carolina State uh, determined that human activity in the suburbs actually has a positive impact on, I think they counted 10 or 11 different species of wildlife that they were tracking. And this is this can be attributed to bird feeders, water sources and gardens, etc. So as humans move into areas, you would expect um, this sort of adverse impact, but really you're seeing sort of boost. But what this leads to is a lot of different conflicts. So you've got like coyotes, people are scared of coyotes. They're one of the most well-known sort of uh, suburban predators. You've got beavers, which I got to study this summer. Beavers create a lot of infrastructure problems because while they chew on sticks and while they dam and while they move natural materials around, they're also affecting um, surrounding water bodies, they're surra uh, the surrounding roads, surrounding dams, etc. At the same time, this wildlife can also be very beneficial for us. So for example, a single bat, even though a lot of people can be scared of bats just due to previous notions, it can catch up to a thousand mosquitoes an hour. Uh, moles and gophers can be good for the yard. They help to aerate lawns and eat the grubs, which damage grass and flowers. Um, beavers are the, themselves are also known to minimize the population of mosquito larvae in lakes. And they have a lot of other interesting effects on their water bodies. So by reducing pesticides and chemical use in our yards, um, there is a pretty standard path to attracting these birds and small mammals by leaving out water, by keeping out dead tree stumps, etc. We can create a sort of level of biological activity in our backyards. But I'm really excited to have Dr. Begley Miller here so we can talk about more of the nuance, what we can do as homeowners and what we can do as people who live in the suburbs to sort of strike a balance between these harmful species and the ones that can definitely do us and them a lot of good. So without further ado, Maxine. Hi, uh, hi, Dr. Bagley Miller. It's so great to see you again and to talk to you. And uh, I know Gabriel had 
a great experience at T-Town. And uh, so I'm going to ask a couple of questions and Gabriel's going to take over. I uh, just wanted to, to add a couple, two things to what uh, Gabriel said. We also have, you know, possums and raccoons and possums, uh, they, they are tick eaters. They're like, you know, you can explain more about that because <laughs> people get blitzed about them as well. And then I know we're going to kind of want to cover a little bit of that that thing in the news that that spotted lantern fly that everyone is kind of freaking out about. So uh, I'll, I'll start off. Um, what are some of the most important tips that you have for homeowners in the suburbs when it comes to wildlife conscious planning in their yards and how they can better, you know, work with wildlife in, in, in when they see it? Yeah. So um, I, you know, I like to think of my yard as a little mini ecosystem, right? So we need to support first the plant community, because that's the basis of every, every food web. And then from there, you support insects. From there, you support birds. And then you might get other, um, you know, foxes and raccoons and those types of things running through your yard as well. You don't have to have a large yard to support wildlife. That's, you know, a, a common misconception. Even a small flower bed planted with native pollinator plants in the sun will do wonders for uh, local pollinators. You know, we've seen pushes for pollinator pathways and medians along highways, for example. And we know that that's really effective as stopovers. Mm -hmm. So, um, you know, thinking about your yard as, as a functioning ecosystem is kind of the first start. Lawns are monoculture wastelands for wildlife. They do nothing for, um, for birds, for insects. They really are water hogs and maintenance nightmares for lawns. So not using pesticides, being okay with weeds in your grass is a really good way to, to support um, local, you know, fauna, right, in your, in your area. And then, you know, thinking about changing some of your management strategies. So I participated for the first year in no mow May, which is where you don't mow your grass for all of May. And you can mow little paths, right? If you have places you want to go in your yard, um, you know, make little, little passageways and then mow the other areas, the bigger expanses um, in June, because it turns out that May is really uh, kind of a flower drought for pollinators, right? Early in the season, there's not much out there. So sometimes these small flowers on weeds in our yards can actually sustain these pollinators a longer, longer time period. So it's just about building that base, planting native plants, reducing your lawn space, and also giving, um, you know, a water source is useful. I have, right now it's very dry in the Hudson Valley. Um, I don't know if, if people have noticed, I'm sure you have. Um, the trees aren't even going to fall color. They're just basically dropping leaves right now because we've had very little rain all summer. And um, I have a small little water fountain in my front yard on a, on a dead tree stump. And it is now the haven for all of the birds in the community because it's sure. the only water source along the main street there. And our stream is basically run dry. So, um, you know, having a small fountain like that and making sure it's clean, that's the other thing. You need to make sure you rinse it and clean it out and not just leave it for, um, you know, gunk and stuff to build up in it because that can also spread disease when you congregate animals together. Um, but that can be some really small ways to really um, improve the overall attractiveness and usefulness of your yard. Well, not only are we in, in, a, in a drought, but it seems that, you know, the mow, blow, and kind of poison you know, seems to be something that that's very much, you know, I see everywhere. And, it, and it's just, at this point, how could people even like mow this, this parched 
dry, you know, they're mowing every week. They're mowing. I, I see it every week mowing. I don't understand how we can get people to, to think in their minds, like you gotta look at the land in a different way that you're looking at it now. And the whole idea is to try to get people to take, you know, consideration for what else is on the planet and also for yourself, because if you keep, you know, putting pesticides on everything, uh, it's not going to bode well. So uh, any any total words of wisdom you can like just quickly throw out before I turn it over to Gabriel, because he's going to he's going to ask the rest of the questions. <laughs> I mean, I, I've said basically treat your yard as a mini ecosystem, right? Limit fertilizers, limit pesticides, plant native, and the rest of it will come. That's like Doug Tallamy, right? Go yes. your own national park. <laughs> exactly. He's a, he's someone who's gonna, you know, so build it and they will come. Build, build it and they will come and, and try to keep your yard uh, like like your own little national park. Mm -hmm. So I'm gonna turn it over to Gabriel to ask questions from here on, and I'm probably throwing spotted lantern unless he does so gabriel go ahead take take it away yeah for sure I, lo I love that quote um about the fact that our yards have to be like national parks um it's it's definitely one of the most predominant ideas right now in pollinator protection which is one of my big interests you got to have your garden is like a little satellite place for these pollinators to grow and thrive and you got to make it attractive because one is not enough but if you've got tens dozens hundreds it it, it gets progressively better um but when we're thinking about our yards, right, there are definitely some considerations that you have to take into account as a homeowner, just on account of being a homeowner. And I have to ask, what are some strategies for dealing with what are known as nuisance animals? So some of the some of the some of the species that I mentioned, like coyotes, uh, beavers and bats. And what are some misconceptions that you want to take the time to address? Because I'm, I'm sure there are plenty. Um, but homeowners are definitely, especially in Chappaqua, you know, you go on Facebook and people are scared that, you know, there's, there are coyotes that are coming and there are like bats in my house. So what are, what are your words of wisdom? Yeah. So, um, one of the things that there's actually, uh, a really awesome paper that came out, uh, academic paper, which I'm not going to point people to, cause it's dense to read, but um, it, it basically pointed to this came out in 2019 by Graynor um, and colleagues, and I, I forget the university, I can look it up, but, but it's um, basically this idea of a landscape of fear. And what they found is that even the largest carnivores, so mountain lions, right, and, and jaguars, when you play human voices in remote areas, they're afraid of us. So they created this term of, uh, it's called the landscape of fear, and it actually changes their their behavior. It changes how long they feed on carcasses. It changes how their movement patterns. Because if you think about it, humans are really the dominant species on the planet. We have taken over every crevice, every corner. And we have a history of basically, you know, taking more than we need. We have a history of, you know, lethal management of what we call quote unquote nuisance species to, um, really curb our fear of these species. So we think about, you know, like there's a lot of times, um, you know, open season basically on coyotes because they're considered a nuisance in a lot of places um, for hunting. And what we find is that really they're just, they're actually more afraid of us than, than we give them credit for because they know that people are a threat. 
they're a threat in terms of, you know, they're overall being hunted. Um, you know, they're, they're more likely to, to be afraid of us and, and our noises. So giving wildlife respect, right. And saying, all right, I understand that this animal is also equally afraid of me. Um, yes, there are risks associated with like a grizzly bear encounter out West, right. That's a very different risk level than the suburbs in Westchester County, but you can be smart about minimizing those risks. So, you know, our most common wildlife conflicts here in Westchester, um, we have coyotes, right, that, that roam pretty freely. They're also in Central Park um, in the city. They are not going to really approach people. The, the biggest interactions with people and wildlife of all types um, is usually caused by human misbehavior. So things like feeding wildlife, you should never feed wildlife, period. No, no ducks, no geese um, in the ponds. It's just not a good idea. They're wild animals and they're unpredictable. And, you know, it just takes one animal to lose its sense of fear to make a, a bad decision and then somebody gets hurt. Um, same with deer. The only exception here is feeding birds in the wintertime. So the DEC actually recommends that you only put bird feeders up in the winter because the birds don't need the food in the summer and in the spring. Um, so you can start putting your feeders up usually at the end of November by December 1st, and then take them down April 1st. And having that food source over the winter for native birds um, and resident birds is good, right? Gives them something to kind of last through the winter time, but take them down by April 1st because we do have bear in the neighborhood. That's a relatively new kind of occurrence. Black bear are coming through occasionally um, looking for a new home range, you know, Baby bears get, you know, once they get to be big bears, they get kicked out of mom's kind of circle. And so they're looking for new places to den. And black bears like bird feeders. They also like trash because they're lazy. All animals are lazy, just like us. They're not going to take, you know, extra effort to go and find a food source if they have, you know, a 5,000 calorie bird feeder just dangling in the summer in somebody's backyard. And, you know, with human behavior, we, we have to take a responsibility for making sure that wildlife stay wild. We are the ones responsible for habituation and bad behavior of animals because they start to associate us with food. And then when they lose that fear, right, I talk about the landscape of fear, when they lose that fear, that's when they become dangerous. It's not about, you know, all coyotes are bad or all bears are bad or all foxes are bad. Um, we have to understand that we coexist, right? We, we are a part of nature. I know we were removed a lot from, you know, the day-to-day, -day, you know, temperature changes and water changes. You know, we have, we have constantly running water and we have temperature controlled buildings and that can make us feel a little bit isolated and, and not connected, but we still are part of this natural landscape. And we need to understand that, you know, modifying our behavior to be smart and not feed wildlife um, is, is really the way to go, you know, and then providing that habitat, which I mentioned earlier about, you know, making your backyard pollinator friendly and planting native plants. That's a passive feeding, right? You can think of like a planting a cone flower in your yard. Um, you're not actively feeding wildlife. You're just providing a plant that is useful for that, for that um, pollinator that's coming through. Right. Yeah, I mean, I'm just going to interject, Gabby, okay? Uh, I, I, we started talking before about the uh, invasives and uh, insect, and in this case, something that's been in the news. I actually encountered these, these spotted, spotted lanternflies in New York City 
on a terrace and in midtown Manhattan, which isn't, which the place, it wasn't far from Central Park, but I could not believe what I was seeing. And it, it flew on my husband and he was saying, this is his buddy. He was like, he jumped up. I was like, what is this? <laughs> so uh, uh, I know people want to know about the, this, this creature that's causing, you know, wreaking a little havoc. Uh, so can you just give us a little bit about what, what we have to worry about and what they are? And are there any predators for them that, that would take them out? Or are we looking at something that's like a monster? <laughs> yeah, so, so spotted lanternfly is just one of many um, invasive pests or invasive insects that have come uh, to the United States through shipping. Um, you know, when you move materials around the world, you move plants and animals unintentionally um, and sometimes intentionally when we plant you know, invasives from, we plant non-native plants from other regions, they can become invasive. Um, and sometimes with those plants comes insects and eggs and those types of things. So um, again, another plug for planting native, the less invasive plant material you move around or non-native plant material you move around, the better, um, the, the less chance you introduce something like spotted lanternfly. But it was first found in Pennsylvania in 2014 um, in the Southeast Pennsylvania area. And um, it's, Basically, a, it's a moth um, and a you know, flying insect that has, it's not a fly, it's kind of a mis, misname, right? So it's, it's more moth-like. And when it was introduced, it, it came over, they think on some egg masses, they lay very sticky putty-like egg masses on horizontal surfaces. So um, think like, you know, the top of a fence post or, um, you know, sides of buildings or those types of things. When they lay those eggs, um, obviously they hatch and those then go through many different, several different, um, they're called instars, but they're, they're stages, right? Insect stages. And eventually turn into the large adult, which you mentioned finding um, mm -hmm. in Manhattan on the terrace. Um, and then they repeat that life cycle. So right now they've all become adults and they're gonna be laying eggs within the next two months. Um, and this has been, introduced to New York City. Um, obviously, there's a lot of commerce in and out and people in and out. Um, first, we knew it was in New York City. I don't know the exact date um, that it came in. So we've been watching for it in Westchester because we know that, you know, it's going to expand its range as it moves northward. T-Town's been monitoring for it. And unfortunately, this year, we didn't find it um, at, on the property. It's a small infestation. Um, we found a, about 40 individuals uh, nymphs and four adults, but we're now getting reports from the neighborhood that there are other adults that are coming in. We don't know if it's, it. our speculation is that it's on neighboring properties and then came to T-Town last, but there is an invasive tree called Tree of Heaven that is its preferred host. So it's a, a complicated invasive problem, right? You have this invasive tree that's been introduced that is the preferred host for this invasive insect. And now it is finding new places to take hold because it's doing so well um, on the tree of heaven. Its populations expand and then it can use other hosts as well. But it's right. you know more likely to get a foothold if there's tree of heaven on your property. So my recommendation here, and Teton's doing its best to coordinate with um, both the DEC and Ag and Markets. We've reported our infestation. We're doing um, trap trees to try to get rid of the infestation. But... Um, the best thing you can do is actually eradicate tree of heaven on your property. That's the first thing. Um, that's the, the primary um, preferred host for the, for the spotted lanternfly. 
Um, and if you're not sure how to do that, don't just cut it down. Your specific tree of heaven is particularly gross and trying to get rid of it. But if, you, if you're concerned and, and want to know what to do, contact the tree company. They can give you specifics on, on how to treat and how to remove um, this, this species. And then second is if you do see it, um, the adults are obvious. They're spotted bright red patches on their wings when they're fully um, expanded. You should attempt to kill as many adults as you see just because um, each adult can lay an egg mass with thousands of, of eggs in it. So we want to try to reduce the spread. Um, and then you also want to monitor for any um, adults on you know any areas that you're going to and, and not bring them back. So if you're going to New York City and, and you're taking a car, for example, um, you know, check your wheel wells during the, the egg mass laying season, which is now through basically the end of September and November, um, and make sure that you're not bringing that stuff back because that's wow. usually how it's getting spread. Yeah. I wouldn't, I have to check my car. I mean, yeah. I, I mean, we saw, and then you see the, you know, the news says, you see this bug squish it, you know, it jumps all over the place. They're uh, very we, difficult to squish. We, they we say squished, that, but the adults are, they're very we squished, wild. We squished a couple adults on that terrace, but it, it was mind boggling to me, um, you know, and, and as you said earlier, it affects uh, other, you know, grapevines and, and hops and, 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 you know, there goes your wine and beer folks. Uh, yeah, so that's, so that's the issue with why ag and markets is so concerned. I mean, there, like I said, there are lots of other invasive pests and insects that cause issues ecologically, but this one has commercial implications for grapes and right. for hops and for apples, which is a huge concern, right, for New York State. So the state is involved in trying to, to map the spread, but it's, I mean, you know, this is something that has to be a, community effort to try to try to deal with. And we've reached out to neighbors about um, surveying their properties for, for Tree of Heaven and also for Spotted Lanternfly to try and come up with a more community-based approach because Spotted Lanternfly doesn't care about property boundaries, right? Mm -hmm. It's going to use yeah. whatever trees are available. It's going gonna, it's gonna, to, well, thanks for that. Cause I, you know, I was curious. I, I think a lot of people are curious. So I mm -hmm. appreciate, I appreciate the, some, some background info on that. Uh, Gabriel, you have any additional questions you want to ask i mean we've covered we've covered so many things i'm just thinking thinking what else um, uh, open space talk about that for a second <laughs> I, I don't know could you actually weigh in because one of one of the things that really struck me during um the environmental academy was the the breadth of the research going on right now could you weigh in on the direction that research is taking in the scientific community regarding human impact and the suburbs? And if there are any trends or any, any particular uh, points of interest that are coming up over and over again? That's a big question. Um, so, so I will say, I can't speak for the full scientific community because I'm not, I'm not an urban ecologist, but I will say that, you know, there is generally consensus that urban landscapes and suburban landscapes are valuable for wildlife habitat, right? And, and for pollinators. And not all is lost because we have, you know, these, these developed and like these, you know, difficult matrices of, of homes and buildings and, and commercial development mixed with forested areas. But what we do know is that um, the more native stuff you plant, 
the better you provide for for the um, insect community, which then obviously has up effects for other trophic levels in a system for birds and, and for um, other wildlife. We know that we have limited space and, you know, it's difficult. There's so much development pressure, even around T-Town, right? Every parcel that could be purchased and developed is, is potentially a site for a new house or for a new apartment complex. And protecting open space with conservation easements or some type of, um, you know, restriction on development is really important. And towns do a good job of this and, you know, not allowing, you know, crazy subdivisions, <laughs> you know, you can't take a parcel that's five acres and turn it into, you know, 10 different smaller parcels for, for smaller houses. Um, they have to have certain road frontage, those types of things to keep development um, at least a little bit at bay. But it's not a perfect system. And we know that there are lots of places that could be higher wildlife value, and they just aren't because they're not planted with, with natives or they're not you know, we don't leave these trees that are large hanging over buildings. We cut them down because they're hazard trees, um, even though they may have a, a owl nest in them, for example. And, and I think a lot of it's just education, you know, making sure that we're educating people about the value of trees and the value of green space and the value of open space beyond recreation. You know, trails are nice and, and getting outside is nice, but sometimes just preserving a space to preserve a space is, is useful. And um, people don't have to use every inch and every corner of every park and every preserve. There can be places that are off limits um, for, for, to allow for um, space for wildlife. Yeah, we're trying to do that here. I'm not gonna go into the where, but um, we, we're trying to preserve an open space. And, yep. and it's very, very important. And uh, I won't, I won't. <laughs> <laughs> totally get into that but I, I really appreciate what you're saying about that because it's so true and we really need to be more you know in our brains that this this protection of spaces like this is very important for so many reasons and uh you know when you have a natural carbon sink we have we're in a climate crisis you know we're in a, a drought situation here uh people need to I know they're stuck in their daily lives and trying to just get through, but we got to start considering other things and, and what you do is fantastic. Uh, so I, I, I really appreciate, you know, your, your words today. Uh, yeah. And I want to just plug to, you know, I think we need to think bigger than just preservation. I mean, I think it's really important to keep open space open, but we also need to think about smarter development, right? You know, the climate crisis isn't going anywhere. We need to think about how we get renewable energy in places like Westchester that's smart and sustainable um, because a lot of our homes are still heated with oil and with gas and those are not renewable resources. We need solar panels on a large scale. We need to think about, you know, potentially doing, you know, renewable development, right? Which is very different from housing development um, or, you know, single family home that that will allow us to you know maybe sacrifice a small section but you know gets a large area off of um you know fossil fuels which which may be a sacrifice that we're willing to make but it's just you know we, we need to think bigger we need to think broader we need to be creative and and forward thinking because we're you know we are doing a lot i mean they just had this this you know climate stuff came out of the, the Inflation Reduction Act, which, mm -hmm. um, you know, actually puts us on a better trajectory for our, our Paris, Climate, Paris Climate Agreement goals. 
but it's not perfect, right? It gets us about half of the way there. So we have to be broader and we have to be willing to see changes to invest in renewables within Westchester and not just focus on, you know, all development is bad. There may be some cases in limited situations where, you know, a solar farm in the right place may make sense Mm -hmm. if if it's the right type of development. Well, the Inflation Reduction Act is definitely a a start. It's, 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 I know there's, there's there's cons, but there's a lot of pros, and and um, I'm I'm gonna go with the pros right now, just you know, because it's it's gonna give us at least a small good, victories are still important. Small victories, you know, are, and, are, are, and you got to start somewhere. And right, that's, exactly. You know, I'm, I'm encouraged by by some of that legislation, and really hopeful mm-hmm. that this is the start of a big, broader legislative uh, agreements to get us where we need to be. And of course, local actions are key. Absolutely. Local actions, local community. In Newcastle, in, 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 everywhere, in Westchester, you know, the local governments, you know, are um, seeing what what's happening, and they they need to take action as well. So, you know, that that hopefully will happen. Exactly. So, exactly. So, how are we doing, Gabriel? Any is that we we good? I, I think that's it. I All think right. we're good. I'd like to thank uh, Dr. Bagley for coming out today and talking to us. Uh, thank you so much for all of the insightful information. And uh, thank you so much for joining us on today's episode of Newcastle Going Green. For more info about the Sustainability Advisory Board, you can visit the About section of our Newcastle website at uh, www.mynewcastle.org slash 303 slash sustainability dash advisory dash board. You could also visit the SAB's Facebook page or email us at sab at mynewcastle.org with any and all questions or ideas. Thank you so much to Alicia Malloy for all of her behind the scenes help. And I'm Aaron Silver, along with Gabriel Paley and Maxine Margarubin, and we'll see you next time.